violence, pessimism, and music in your brain. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm back after a one-week break to recover from tour, but I'm traveling again this weekend. I'll be in Frisco, Texas at Hope Fellowship for all four of their church services talking about science and faith. So glad to be back with you guys. So glad to do a show this week. So what do you say? Let's get it started. Hey Mike, it's your friend Kevin here. Now we both go way back, initially meeting primarily due to music way back, what, sophomore year of high school? And thanks for firing me as a drummer, by the way, for the very first time. As everybody knows, that's the pinnacle of being a legitimate drummer in the rock and roll music sphere. So I've had that for my resume for a long time. Just kidding, man. Maybe. Don't really hold it against you. Anyhow, I have a question about music and its effect on the brain. Growing up in fundamentalist churches, I often heard about the dangers of certain styles of music. There were, of course, issues with the content of the music, which is understandable from a religious perspective, especially when the content was so often revolving around uh, things such as drugs and sex and misogyny. However, taking it one step further, my church also taught that things such as Christian metal or Christian rap were damaging as well. Now, I get that. (laughs) Much Christian metal was extremely painful to listen to. But that, of course, wasn't what they were referring to. Uh, They were often instead referring to the tribal beats within the music or minor keys or the dark tunings like drop D or other types, etc. And said that those styles of music, regardless of the message, were damaging to listen to from a spiritual perspective. Now, it all sounds like hogwash. Uh, You and I grew up listening to bands like Metallica, Nirvana, Soundgarden, so on and so forth. And I don't ever remember having demons invade my brain as a result. However, we do know that music can have an effect on us physiologically. Types of music have proven to lower blood pressure, affect our mood, etc. As a result, we have things like music therapy as a valid type of science. Now, my question is directed to how different styles of music affect us, both from a content perspective to a physiological perspective. Is there any damage, so to speak, from listening to certain keys or types of beats? What about content? I'm sure that listening to content of a negative type can certainly reinforce certain types of maybe revolting behaviors. Uh, Likewise, are there any studies on listening to church-approved music, such as Southern Gospel or hymns? So, to sum it up, was Tipper Gore right? Was Twisted Sister destroying the youth of America in the mid-80s? What are the negative aspects of music? What are the positives? And what types of music should we listen to if we want to become peacemakers, servants, and people following after the mind of Christ? Thanks, Mike. I look forward to hearing your answer. Well, Kevin, this was a surprisingly difficult question to research. And the reason is music is such a complicated phenomenon that in order to answer all the subtleties and nuance of your question with confidence, we'd have to devote I don't know, probably more research just into people listening to music than we've done total research on the brain and fMRIs. It's uh, (laughs) 
pretty wild phenomenon. But let's talk a little bit about what we do know, looking at studies of music and the brain. The first thing I found was at least at the level we can image the brain today is there's not a dramatic difference in the way our brains experience different genres of music, be that pop or metal or classical. Uh, there's a you know long-standing idea that listening to classical music makes you smarter. It's not true. <laughs> what we have found in studies is that listening to music you enjoy improves cognitive performance immediately after listening to that music, which is where that belief came from. It was a a valid finding stretched too far and not put in context. How could humans ever do that? We kind of experience music very similarly with one distinction. Uh, well, let's think about what makes music music, first of all, neurologically speaking. When you hear noise, just regular old noise, most of the processing happens in your brain's auditory cortex. Uh, but when you listen to music, more of the brain is engaged than when you listen to simple noise. Uh, parts of the brain responsible for memory and movement and cognitive function, as well as uh, other sound processing, activate in the brain, especially in your temporal lobes. But when you listen to uh, music with lyrics, it shifts the way you're processing music in a towards the left auditory cortex more than that happens when you listen to instrumental music. So you have this distinction between uh, classical and uh, pop music, mainly in the fact that one has vocals and the other does not. But this is true of any instrumental versus any music with lyrics in terms of how the brain processes it. And the thing is, the reason music becomes such a hot topic is we love it. People love music neurologically speaking. Um, you know, part of the draw of music is because it has a foundation that's built on repetition. A repetition is a beat. Our prefrontal cortex likes to predict the rhythm of that beat. That's why we tap our toes. That's why we dance. We're moving in time with music and celebrating our successful prediction. Our brains like to make predictions and be right. That's why we like repetition. And then we also find that music can create uh, rewards that are similar to food and sex in our brain. So when we experience music and we enjoy music, we go to a similar place neurologically as we would eating good food or having sex. And uh, I think most people are like me. They like good food and they like sex. So we like music a lot. Uh, we've also found, and I think this is interesting when you talk about the church condemning, uh, some parts of the church condemning different genres of music. They've studied people that grew up in bicultural households who listen to music that come from different genres of world music and found that to be neurologically beneficial, that it creates uh, more activity in the brain when listening to any music and uh, maximizes that reward effect. So it appears listening to different styles and different genres of music may actually be beneficial and not detrimental which is astounding and wonderful if you think about it. Now, in terms of these ideas of bad music, you know, music that's aggressive or uh, metal or, or hip-hop or, or some of the mu music that older people tend to frown on, although today older people listen to that because metal and old-school hip-hop are now oldies, but uh, enough about me getting old. What we're finding is it's less about the music itself and more about what you take into it. 
the emotional state you take when you listen to the music in the first place. So if you're feeling aggressive and you listen to aggressive music or angry and you listen to angry music, yes, it deepens that emotional experience and can leave traces in the brain. Same way that uh, sadness, if you're, if you're very melancholy and you listen to music to really express and sit in that sadness, you're going to amplify those feelings. But the same music listened to for enjoyment or nostalgia or whatever affects the brain differently. So it appears to be less about the genre of music and how it affects us and more the emotional state we approach music with. That it seems that music is basically a force amplifier for human emotion in how we process it. Now again, way more questions than research has answered today, but I did pick out uh, you know, four resources I'll put on the show notes at AskScienceMike.com about how music affects the brain. You can go check that out and read more about different genres of music and how they live in the brain. But the moral of the story is there doesn't appear to be good music and bad music, but there does appear to be an, a linkage between how we approach music, our emotional posture, and how it affects us as people. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Mike, my question is in regards to pessimism, optimism, and rationalism, etc. Are these personality traits or hardwired into us? I ask because I've been accused of being a severe optimist, which might explain why I have such a hard time with my family, which is full of severe pessimists. Take, for example, watching a football game. I've never watched a football game, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Our team is up 24 to 10. The running back has rushed for 100 yards and two brilliant TDs already. I don't know what a TD is, man. Anyway, sorry. Uh, however, on the next play, when the running back fumbles, statements from family such as that kid is awful, he can't do anything right, and well, here we go, we're going to get killed now, begin to populate the room. I literally have to leave the room because it makes me so angry. Why is that? I honestly feel like it's a terrible way to live, but it gets me thinking. I wonder if optimism and pessimism are ways of dealing with our anxiety. It seems my family members are predicting a loss at that point in the game, just in case we do lose, and they can say, well, I told you so. But in this case, they did win, and after the game, Everyone was talking about how great the team was. Even after coming up with this interpretation slash hypothesis, these pessimistic statements still affect me and really get under my skin. Maybe such pessimistic statements are emotionally and mentally processed very differently to a pessimist. What's going on here? Science Mike. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here uh, scientifically and relationally, so let's get to it. Uh, first, strictly on optimism and pessimism, research has shown that there could be a genetic link between pessimism and one particular gene labeled ADA2B, that in studies, people possessing that gene tend to follow a neurological pattern associated with being more pessimistic in outlook. 
And whether that is well-founded in research or not, we do see differences in brain activity between optimists and pessimists. For example, pessimists have a hard time foreseeing positive outcomes to events. And telling them to think positive actually makes it more difficult for them to foresee positive outcomes, neurologically speaking. And you can see this in brain scans. Pessimists tend to have a weaker connections or less uh, activity association between their prefrontal cortex, that's the part of the brain that does analytical thinking and focus and concentration, and the amygdala, the seat of the brain's most powerful emotional centers, fear, anger, anxiety, anytime you really have a strong feeling, the amygdala is evolved. And additionally, pessimists tend to have more activity in their right frontal cortex than their left frontal cortex. Now, researchers learned this by showing a lot of test subjects a series of negative images. For example, uh, someone holding a knife up to a woman's neck while telling the subjects the situation had a positive outcome. And what they found was that pessimists had a hard time accepting a positive outcome, and they tended to dwell on the negative image longer. Now, a couple of thoughts. One is a quote from a researcher, David Hecht, who said, Our survival and wellness require a balance between optimism and pessimism. Undue pessimism makes life miserable, However, excessive optimism can lead to dangerously risky behaviors. So we tend to um, look down on pessimists. We tend to, you know, poo-poo their experiences and tell them to just think positively. But too much optimistic thinking isn't safe. So I want to start with that. We, We might overly highlight the advantages of optimism. Second, much like the uh, well-known introvert extrovert situation, optimist pessimist is a spectrum. There are very few people who would be pure extroverts or introverts, and there are very few people who would be pure optimists or pessimists. We tend to be more optimistic or pessimistic based on our circumstances and in different areas of our lives. I tend to be very optimistic about my friends, about people, about my family, about uh, situations that are personal in nature, I tend to be very pessimistic about anything involving uh, my work or business and how people will receive it. So in my IT days, when I did mainly network architecture and systems design, I was very optimistic about my capabilities because it was just me and machines and I controlled all the variables. (laughs) But now, every time I release a podcast or do a live event or my book's coming out, Part of my brain is convinced it's not going to work. It's going to fail. No one's going to show up to the event. No one's going to download the podcast. And no one's going to buy the book. Uh, So am I an optimist or am I a pessimist? Well, depending on who you ask and in what context they know me, you would get different answers. And that's true for almost everyone. So we have a tendency towards optimism or pessimism that is affected by our circumstances And our nature. We are born with a tendency one way or the other, and it gets reinforced over time, like almost every aspect of human personality. There's an interaction, an intersection of nature and nurture. 
And because of our prefrontal cortex, because of our elaborate model of reality, we're an animal that can also self-condition. So we can nurture ourselves for good or for bad. Now, (laughs) there's another thing I pulled from your question, and forgive me if this is wrong, but it seems you also may be conflict-averse. And I say that because I'm very conflict-averse. And when I was growing up and you know, my family would scream at the football game, I couldn't handle it. I had to leave the room. Uh, and so you may want to look in your own life how much uh, of this is conflict-aversion versus optimism and pessimism and how you can come up with coping or mitigating strategies to be more comfortable with healthy conflict and to manage unhealthy conflict. And by the way, optimism and pessimism have to do with forecasting future outcomes. You can still have a positive temperament or a very open, accepting, affirming posture towards other people and have some pessimistic outlooks in some situations. We're we're very, very, very complex creatures neurocognitively, and we want to be careful not to sort everything into either or binaries because although they tend to be useful constructs and and help us understand a spectrum of human behavior, uh, we too naturally as humans say it's A or B. (laughs) It's just, there's a lot of values. In fact, there's an infinite number of values between zero and one. Hey, dude. I have a question about race and justification. So after the Liturgist podcast, I felt the moral obligation to create the most stay-woked-up Amazon cart, and I did just that. So what I ended up doing was getting a black theological history of liberation and God of the Oppressed by James H. Cone. And so upon starting the primary stages of the first chapter of uh, God of the Oppressed, He started talking about how the white Protestant apparatus responded to the 12th Street riots in Detroit um, and how it was deemed as irresponsible and deplorable, which even as a white Protestant, I vehemently disagree with. For whatever reason, I tend to find a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment in violence So, like, even specifically with Baltimore, for whatever reason, I found myself either subconsciously or actively admonishing the violent behavior. So, I wanted to know, how are those two linked in my brain? Violence as justification or sense of vindication. Thanks, Mike. Human beings are the most violent species of ape on planet Earth. The next most violent species of ape is chimpanzees, and they are less likely to go into war and less likely to engage in personal conflicts than Homo sapiens have been historically. In fact, human beings participating in or watching violence show physical symptoms of uh, arousal, not quite sexual in nature, but with changes in our hormonal levels in our bloodstream, elevated activity in the pleasure centers of our brain. Humans love violence. It's why boxing is so popular. It's why people 
sometimes like to watch cars flip over when they're watching NASCAR. We are violent animals, and we love stories of vindication and revenge. We love when the bully gets their comeuppance. And these are behaviors and biases that have been rewarded by evolution. Because if the whole tribe cheers when you're punished for your wrongdoing, maybe people are less likely to do wrong. I used to love to watch violent movies, whether it was uh, like Bloodsport with Jean-Claude Van Damme and people fighting, or Rambo where you know guys with guns take out the bad guys. But at the heart of those stories is people winning via physical force, physical violence, breaking other bodies. I've lost my appetite for it. Now let me be clear. I'm not equating the natural pleasure humans get from observing violence and the thrill we get from stories of retribution with supporting the genuine plight of people of color in America today. But what I am talking about is the zeal we can feel, the excitement, yes, even the arousal from seeing bodies broken. And that might be a police officer or a storefront being destroyed, a riot on news media, which, by the way, (laughs) the news tends to focus on the most sensational images. So, so often in America, peaceful protests have small pockets of violent activity, which these riots are the language of the oppressed. They have no other voice. But the news media shows that and not the people peacefully demonstrating. Either way, (laughs) I'm not equating these things. What I am saying is sometimes we enjoy those images. In the same way, why do we like to show the body of a black man in the street on the news after a shooting? Regardless of what we think, what where does that curiosity come from? I, I hear those stories. I say their names, but I don't, I don't look at their bodies broken in media. How you relate to violence and retribution is affected by your experiences. I'm weird uh, about race for a white person. Uh, I've learned that as I've gotten older. And uh, it comes down to a couple of things. I didn't have any friends in elementary school. I was a nerdy kid. And uh, all the white kids, and I went to a overwhelmingly white elementary school, and all the white kids picked on me. They made fun of me, brutally in many cases. But there was a young black boy who would play with me. So often he was the only person, the only play companion I had. I wouldn't say we were friends, but we were both lonely. And uh, I don't know, the most positive Social experiences I had from kindergarten to fifth grade was a young black child. And then middle school, the bullying I experienced intensified. And um, an older, I hate to say child, black boy, he was, uh, he'd been held back a few times, physically powerful, became my protector and my advocate. He grabbed a bully off of me one time and said, if you ever touch him again, you touch me. And the space created by that man allowed me to become who I am today. For the first time in my life, I wasn't afraid every time I walked down the hallways. Because of that, I associate 
presence of black people with physical safety. I feel more comfortable whenever a black person is in the room. Now, that story led to an exchange between me and propaganda before we recorded the Liturgist podcast on black and white America. Propaganda told me some things that brought me to tears about how that black child recognized the oppression I experienced (laughs) and felt empowered because he could lift me from oppression even though he could not lift himself. And so when propaganda called me a stay-woke white boy, something that Twitter has picked up and championed, my face burned with shame. And not because I'm ashamed to be identified with the black experience, but because I understand all too well I did nothing to be woke. Nothing. That it was my experiences that shaped me. That it was the compassion and, yes, the patience of black people that allowed me to recontextualize my experiences. So, that creates a responsibility for me. My response to oppressors must be grace. Why? Because I'm not the oppressed. Because I can be gracious. Because I can host conversations that feel safe for the oppressor. Because so often the oppressor is unaware or unknowing or simply asleep. And if they are startled too quickly... They'll simply go back to sleep. They won't become woke. And so when I see these responses that you've talked about that in some ways seem violent, I understand the motivation of someone who would push over a car in frustration over a system of economic and social dominance that keeps them down. But I also have the responsibility to be aware of how many of my white brothers and sisters were not defended by black children when they were children, whose only encounters with these stories have been through media, have been through curated narratives. You see, my goal is to create knowledge and insight in white America about white supremacy white privilege, and the systemic disadvantages people of color face. Because once people have that knowledge and that insight, they have a responsibility to act. And most people can't arrive at that knowledge and that insight unless they are taken there via some kind of trust-based relationship. That even if their actions like mine cause harm to others, someone has to consider their intent And someone has to say, I understand you are a good person, but somehow our actions still cause harm. And that means acknowledging, yeah, we get excited by images of violence, but we're also motivated when we can hear the stories of people who don't have the same shot. This is the mechanism, by the way, which has driven America so rapidly to accept lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, and other people of non-traditional gender or sexual orientation. 
because their stories were told. And the job now is to expose white America to the stories of people of color so they may see that as well. And we can reach tipping points statistically where change can happen at the legislative level and where every single American truly is able to exercise their inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our last question is a short one. It says, when you went from being an atheist to becoming a Christian again, what happened to all the questions and reasons you had accumulated for not believing in God or Jesus or the resurrection or the Bible? It's a great question. (laughs) And uh, I don't have a satisfying answer because nothing happened to them. Absolutely nothing happened to my doubts and my questions. Um, If you haven't heard my story, I grew up um, in the church. I was Southern Baptist. As an adult, I became an atheist because I questioned the foundational claims of Christianity, that the Bible was God's word, that Jesus was the Son of God or even a real person. I could go on and on, name a foundational idea behind Christianity, and I rejected it because I didn't think Christianity could provide evidence to support its claims. And I became an atheist. And then, then I had these weird experiences where I experienced God directly in, a, in very powerful ways. If you haven't heard this, episode six and seven of the Liturgist podcast, I talk about it in detail. Uh, also, I've got a book coming out in September called Finding God in the Waves, where I go through that story and my response to it, how I came to have something I could call a Christian faith again on the other side of atheism. And at first, none, zero of my questions had answers. So here I'd heard Jesus talk to me in English, and I thought the most likely explanation was that it was a hallucination. (laughs) And I had this profound experience with a blinding light on the beach, and I thought probably neurologically induced social pressure kind of thing. And yet, and yet, it was so life-changing, so beautiful. I just kind of sat with the experience and those questions. And then I went on this mission to find out what had happened to me and who or what God may be. And that led to studying cosmology and neuroscience, and quantum physics, and all the most basic sciences that explain our reality and how humans experience it. And I started to find answers. But they weren't answers that were acceptable inside uh, my faith tradition, or frankly, most Christian faith traditions. (laughs) I'm pretty out there theologically. But it led to me creating these axioms uh, where I had these self-evident belief statements about what I could believe about God, what I could demonstrate about God scientifically. And over time, uh, I need those axioms less because I'm finding 
an incredible comfort in not knowing things and just experiencing things and learning things. So I still love science. It's still my favorite. I love learning with high degrees of confidence facts about reality. But science can't complete a human experience, right? It's just a methodology for learning facts. It doesn't give us a a meaning in life. Science doesn't give us a moral philosophy or ethic. And so I let my faith inform those areas. Uh, but without making fact claims, I don't, I don't, I don't have any, I mean, any claims uh, from my faith. My faith is it's much more like falling in love than making a logical argument. And I would have the same difficulty explaining my faith in logical, concrete terms that I would have explaining my love for my wife in logical, concrete terms. I'd have to sing you a song or paint a picture to describe that experience. And even then, I'd miss something. You wouldn't feel what I feel. You just have to experience it yourself. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like to know what it's like to love someone as much as I love Jenny, you just have to be deeply in love yourself. And that's faith to me. It's a mystery. It's a posture of gratitude towards life, towards living, toward the experiences we have, the soaring highs of joy and even an appreciation for sorrow and loss, the dynamic range that make up our days, an appreciation for a beautiful spring day like today, but also Boy, that hot, hot, swampy August we have in Tallahassee. Or the crisp, cold winters that (laughs) burned my face when I was uh, up in Minneapolis this winter. All of these things are gifts. All of them are beautiful. What does that have to do with God or Jesus or the resurrection or the Bible? These have become ways I contextualize those experiences. And honestly, I go into incredible detail, literally hundreds of pages of detail in my book, Finding God in the Ways, that comes out this September. Uh, You can learn more about that at findinggodintheways.com. And I am not trying to turn this answer into a commercial. Uh, It's actually the reason I wrote the book is because the question you just asked me is the most common question I get. And I just found I can't answer it in a satisfactory way in a blog post or a podcast question or even on stage for a whole hour that it takes like 250 pages to explain what happened to all the questions I had about God, Jesus, the resurrection, and the Bible. Uh, So the only way I can do that answer service is with that book. Okay, that's another episode of Ask Science Mike. Listen, I got to just share some gratitude and some love here. I just got to do it. (laughs) I took last week off because I was so tired. Uh, And I appreciate all of you offering me the grace to take a week and just rest. But, boy, this spring and late winter, I went everywhere, man. (laughs) I met so many of you in cities across the country And can I just say thank you? Thank you for taking time out of your week to come to a venue and hang out with me for a while. Or if you saw us on the One Wildlife Tour with me and with Gunger, I loved seeing you. You have no idea 
So you come up to me and you <laughs> shake my hand or some of you cry and then you apologize to me for crying or some of you feel weird because, listen, you have to know I have nothing but joy getting to know you all. You're a blessing to me. <laughs> I mean, just imagine for a second that you have an experience with God and all it does is make you feel weird and like an outsider and like you don't belong anymore. You don't belong in your church and you don't belong with your friends who are atheists. You're just a weirdo. And then you go to events and people from all over come and they say they're there because they felt alone. You have no idea how good that feels, how affirming that is. So let me give you permission. Come up to me and bawl your eyes out. I'll cry and I'll ask if you're okay getting a hug and then we'll just hug it out. And if you feel awkward, don't feel awkward. I am genuinely thrilled to see you. Genuinely thrilled. I mean, <laughs> when Portland screamed so loud at the start of Ask Science Mike Live that they clipped the microphones or when Los Angeles chanted Science Mike as soon as I walked out on the stage, you just make me feel so loved. And I am so thankful for all of you. And not only that, holy cow. I want to thank all of you who have dug deep and helped make the show possible on Patreon. There's been an influx of people digging deep and offering a lot of money every month. And there's also been so many people now who are sending a dollar or $5 or $20 a month. Thank you. <laughs> You make my life possible. You make this show possible. Like, like I, I eat food and have health insurance because of you. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. I am just overwhelmed with gratitude. And I just had to burn some airtime saying how thankful I am for you and how much I love you. Thanks for helping make these conversations possible. I also want to thank, as always... Andrew Galucky, who's doing our pre-production work for the show. Greg Nordeen, the show's producer. And Jeb Bodiford, my good friend who wrote the Ask Science Mike theme song. I've got way fewer events coming up over the summer. This fall will be much more intense with the uh, Finding God in the Waves book tour, as well as the Liturgist Gathering in Denver and Chicago. So if you'd like to see me in person... No, I'd love to see you. Go to AskScienceMike.com and click on events and we'll get together. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next week.